What's good, y'all? This is Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shereen Marisol Meraji. And here's Donald Trump, President of the United States. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. So we know some of you are anxious about what that America first means. Okay. <laughs> and so we invited Ahilan Arulanantham onto the show to address some of your fears. He's a civil rights lawyer with the ACLU of Southern California. The truth is that there's very little power of the administration to roll back people's rights before you hit a constitutional floor. But, you know, that that's not always true. In the spirit of full transparency, we wanted to make sure that it was clear. We spoke to Ahilan before Trump's executive actions on so-called border security and immigration enforcement improvements. Mr. Trump signed those executive actions on the day this episode was supposed to drop. But we did touch on those issues with Ahilan and some of the other concerns that you, the listeners, had about the first 100 days of a Trump administration. We're going to start here with a voicemail we got from a woman in Florida. Hi, my name is Mallory. I live in Tallahassee, Florida. I know everyone hates Florida. I don't hate Florida. <laughs> anyway, Jean, Mallory told us that it's been really hard for her since November because there's this woman she works with who's like a work mom to her. Mallory's black, her work mom is white, and her work mom voted for Mr. Trump. In fact, a lot of her coworkers did. And Mallory said her and her work mom have always had a really nice relationship. But when it comes to politics, it's like a switch. It's so strange. And one of my biggest struggles in the next 100 days is not to let this become normal. I've had panic attacks at work because it's so normal. It's so weird. I work with so many people who, you know, they'll be polite when they see me. But it's like you don't think that I deserve to be here with you or that I should have the same rights as you. You know, Shireen, a lot of the folks who called in expressed this quiet just like that. They had concerns mm-hmm. about their civil rights being rolled back, about the wall on the border, about, you know, about possibly experiencing more racial profiling. About possible Muslim registries mm-hmm. and the fate of sanctuary cities, which is especially pertinent in light of President Trump's new immigration enforcement plans. So in a few minutes, we're going to hear more from Ahilena Rulanatham. He's the civil rights lawyer for the ACLU of Southern California. He's the director of advocacy there. He's also, as an aside, a newly minted recipient of the MacArthur Genius Award. But I I think all those happy genius grant money vibes have worn off, Gene, <laughs> after all these recent executive actions. I'm just saying. Yeah, we we all need a drink. I don't drink, but I think I need a drink. Yeah, we both need a drink or a swimming pool full of liquor to dive in. <laughs> you and your Kendrick. Pass out. <laughs> drink. Wake up. We're going to hear more from Island <laughs> and from you listeners after the break. This is Code Switch. Don't go away. Drink. Stand up. Drink. Pass out. Drink. Wake up. Drink. Support for this podcast and the following message come from HelloFresh, the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed to eliminate food waste, along with step-by-step recipes for delicious meals designed to take 30 minutes to make. And everything is delivered in a special insulated box for free. Code Switch listeners can receive $35 off their first week of deliveries. Just visit HelloFresh.com and enter promo code SWITCH on your first purchase. 
Hey, before we get back to the show, there's a new president. And as things transition, the NPR Politics Podcast is inviting you to skip the cable news hangover and get caught up with them. They'll have two new podcast episodes each week so you will know what happened and what it means by the time you get to work or class. Whatever your morning routine, make the NPR Politics Podcast a part of it as you follow the first 100 days and beyond. Subscribe or listen on the NPR One app or at npr.org slash podcasts. All right, y'all, we're back with Ahilan Arulanantham. He's a civil rights attorney for the ACLU of Southern California and a newly minted MacArthur genius, Woot. We're going to play you a little bit of the conversation we had with Ahilan and throw in some of the listener feedback that we got. And we just have to say this is one conversation. We're going to have a lot of others over the next 100 days of Trump's administration. Mm-hmm. So Ahilan's not the last word on all this. But to kick things off, we had him respond to one of the biggest, scariest issues on people's minds right now, mass deportations. And he told us deporting millions of people would be a logistical nightmare. Since 1903, it's been the law, the constitutional law of the country, that people who are in the United States are entitled to due process when the government tries to deport them. And that means you have to get a hearing. And the hearing happens in front of a judge. And the immigration judge system right now is one of the most backlogged court systems in the country, massively backlogged under the Obama administration because of huge um, underfunding of that system and massive over-enforcement under the Obama administration I'm talking about. So now there's more than 500,000 case backlog in that system. People are getting immigration court cases set out for years. Like you go to court and they say, your next hearing will be, I'm not kidding, in 2019. And Jean, Ahilan told us that all these people facing this backlog of deportation hearings, they don't get public defenders. So mm. if they want representation, they got to pay for it. And lots of work is happening right now on the state and local level to create funds and set aside money to provide them with that representation. Something interesting, he told us, is that there's a debate raging as we speak over who gets that money. Should gang members have access to subsidized legal representation or just dreamers? Right. And that that debate actually is a debate that our, our listeners might be really familiar with because we've talked about on the podcast that that distinction between who's a good immigrant and who's a bad immigrant. Um, and like Democrats and Republicans who came before him, Donald Trump talks a lot about deporting those, and I'm doing the air quotes as we always do here, mm-hmm. bad immigrants. Here's the president on 60 Minutes right after the election. What we are going to do is get the people that are criminal and have criminal records, gang members, drug dealers. We have a lot of these people, probably two million. It could even be three million. We're getting them out of our country or we're going to incarcerate. There aren't two to three million deportable non-citizens you know, who are deportable because they have a criminal conviction like um, a gang-related offense or a drug, drug dealer, I think of as drug trafficking or, you know, not just like smoking weed in your house kind of um and and there aren't two to three million such people so you know then you have to think well what is he talking about then yeah so shireen ahilin was like look if by people who have committed crimes the president means you know people who have committed the crime of being here illegally you know they haven't done anything else illegal besides not having the right immigration paperwork then that might be one way that president trump counts you know two or three million so-called criminals and as we know you can also pull over folks for all kinds of things. Yeah, changing lanes without signaling, um, and you know, then you could get to three million people if you did that the right way, or something. You know, so it's just a, it's a very, very vague uh, statement, but obviously one that has inspired a lot of fear, and I think rightly so. Also, I was thinking of immigration enforcement. I mean, do we have enough people to apprehend these quote? Un- I mean, according to Trump, two to three million criminal 
undocumented immigrants? We don't, if we're talking about people who are inside the country. Uh, but I think one way that people in the Trump administration may think about trying to deal with that quote-unquote problem uh, is to engage state and local law enforcement officers into the business of doing federal immigration enforcement. So again, we taped this interview before President Trump's executive actions where he's addressing this very thing. He's going to give more power to local law enforcement to go after people in this country illegally. And Ahilan told us what this might look like in practice. You get pulled over for a traffic ticket. The cop asks what your immigration status is. When they're doing a check on your driver's license to see if there's outstanding warrants, find some way for them to also check some immigration database to figure out if there's uh, an immigration record on you and then connect that directly into the deportation system. If you did something like that, uh, potentially you could have the enforcement power to go after a lot more people, but you'll get a lot of resistance to that. And that really makes me think of Arizona. Remember SB 1070, Gene? Mm -hmm. Yep. That law tried to make it a state crime if folks didn't have their immigration documents with them at all times and required local law enforcement to check their immigration status. And one of Trump's advisors on immigration was one of the architects of SB 1070. Arizona, man, I don't know. I heard it was a good place to retire. Probably, probably. Well, it depends, (laughs) right? (laughs) Because we thought of that when we heard this voicemail we got from a listener named Eric Carr who lives in Tucson. I have to give a disclaimer that I am a upper-class white guy, so I have a lot of privilege. But my husband and I have two black sons. Um, one is 20 and one is 22. We have nice cars, and every time they drive one of our cars, they get pulled over. My older son, every time he's taken the Volvo convertible, has been pulled over. And every single time, meanwhile, neither I nor my husband have ever been pulled over in that car. Our older son, Elijah, has actually been pulled over twice by the Border Patrol, which I didn't know even had jurisdiction to pull people over. Shereen, I have so many feelings about that voicemail. Talk to me. <laughs> I mean, one of the big criticisms of SB 1070 is that like, it essentially allowed, maybe even required, that local police racially profile people. Um, and so here you have this local law enforcement and the Border Patrol all layered on top of each other doing exactly that. Yeah, a federal court found that the Maricopa County Sheriff uh, was engaging in a systematic practice of racially profiling Latinos in Arizona. That was former Sheriff Joe Arpaio. But in the case of the voicemail we just heard, we have the Border Patrol pulling over a young man for driving while black. Yeah, that, that is wild. That is wild. It is wild and it's layered and it's complicated. And we're going to move on to some more complications from another listener on the border talking about immigration issues as we move into Donald Trump's first 100 days. My name is Jose Francisco Fonseca. Yo vivo en El Paso, Texas. And it's kind of scary porque no sabemos... I love that Jose was code switching right there. Right, code switch to me so I know it's real. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Spanish and English. Jose told us that he's going to be working on local legislation in El Paso that's meant to protect immigrants at this moment in which a lot of forces are marshaled, like literally marshaled mm-hmm. forces against them. And when it comes to marshaling those forces, Gene, here are just a few things from Donald Trump's executive actions this week. Hiring more Border Patrol agents, expanding detention space, which we're going to get to in a minute in this conversation, and punishing cities where mayors and police chiefs say they'll refuse to help round people up. The ACLU's Ahilan Arulanantham, he's keeping an eye on those sanctuary cities. If I had was a gambling man, which thank God I'm not, uh, you know, one thing that I would seriously think about is a, a very big legal battle over um, states 
and cities adopting sanctuary city policies, the federal government trying to take their funding away, and then conflict, which may very likely end up in court over whether the federal government can do that or not. Because when the Supreme Court upheld the Affordable Care Act in part, it also established rules about the conditions under which the federal government can and cannot, quote unquote, coerce states by withholding federal funding in certain areas. And some people think that there may be constraints on the federal government's ability to do what they're trying to do for sanctuary cities because of that case. There's also potentially a very big political fallout from that. I mean, if the states and local governments commit to doing it, we're talking about the biggest states and cities in the country, New York, uh, Chicago, Los Angeles, or all of California doing this, and the federal government pulls all their law enforcement funding and you're gutting the law enforcement resources of these massive cities. And that's going to be quite a political fight. Another big political fight, that new executive action by Donald Trump calls for more detention space along the border. That probably means more private prisons where Ireland said the federal government already stashes many thousands of undocumented people, some of whom are asylum seekers. And you know, the debate in this country over private prisons has grown alongside a moral argument around mass incarceration. And there's still this problem with this whole industry of companies who are profiting from the incarceration of all these people. And yeah, I, I think that is a, a very serious problem. It creates really distorted political dynamics because they lobby for enforcement regimes that cause more uh, detention, which makes perfect sense from a profit-making standpoint, but is really, really dysfunctional and bad for the you know creation of public policy. Other anxieties that are out there over threats that Donald Trump made on the campaign trail are anxieties over um, banning Muslims um, and also creating a Muslim registry, which is something that he hasn't condemned. But South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley in her confirmation hearing for UN ambassador said this. This administration and I don't think there should be any registry based on religion. I think what we do need to do is make sure that we know exactly which countries are a threat, which ones have terrorism, and those are the ones that we need to watch and be careful and vet as we go forward in terms of who comes into the country. I understand vetting people who come to America. I'm talking about American citizens. Is there any justification for any registry of subgroups of Americans? No, there is not. Now, that other voice you heard questioning Nikki Haley is Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland. And a lot of people who reached out to us were really worried about the fate of Muslims in this country. Here's a voicemail from Andrea, who is a listener from St. Louis. Hi, I am a teacher in Missouri, and I know amongst my students, a lot of Muslim students are feeling very nervous and not not quite so at home. Things are kind of tense at school. We don't really talk about our opinions. So, Gene, we asked Ahilan for his opinion. Mm-hmm. Is a Muslim registry a real possibility? I'm reasonably confident that a Muslim registry won't happen in America. Um, whether Nikki Haley's comment sort of marginally increases that confidence, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not totally sure. It's like people in this administration say all kinds of things. But I think the fact that a number of the cabinet appointees have been asked about this and no one so far as, I mean, I've, I've been sort of following it. It sounds like everybody has said no Muslim registry. I think it just is a sign that as unconstitutional as are many of the things that Donald Trump has talked about, this is sort of just that much farther, kind of beyond the pale. But Jean, then Ahilen went on to say that when it comes to non-citizens, mm-hmm. we did have a registry for students from Iran who are living in the U.S. in the 80s. 
And that was upheld by the courts. I did not know about that. Never heard of it before. I didn't know that. And my dad's Iranian. There's also this now defunct NSEERS program created after 9-11 to register and track mostly Arab and Muslim non-citizens. So there are worries that similar things could happen under President Trump. The absolute worst case scenario, Shireen, would be internment, Mm -hmm. rounding up all the Muslims in the U.S. and putting them behind bars. And we honestly just asked this question to Ahilin about internment, to have him shoot it down just to give us a flat no. But then he was like, well... I, I guess it's you can say it's a flat no in the sense that if they, if they tried to pass, if anybody tried to declare or proclaim a policy, we're going to intern all the Muslims, I think that's pretty clearly unconstitutional and there's no way that a court would uphold that and probably the government wouldn't, you know, a government wouldn't even try it. So I think I mean, that's, a, that's a pretty unequivocal no for you, right? Right. We can't intern Muslim Americans. But Ahilan also says we do have a system in place that imprisons non-citizens without jury trials. There's 40,000 people, more than that, who are going to go to sleep tonight in an immigration detention center. They're in these buildings that are locked up and they're wearing orange jumpsuits and they can't hug their children because they're in a prison. They don't have a right to a trial by jury. So there's this whole system of imprisonment without trial, which we have tolerated for years, in the immigration context. Now, that's not the same thing as internment, because like I said, you know, you have to commit a deportable offense, and then sure. you, you end up there, and you do get a hearing. and so. But it's a little bit fuzzier there when it comes to non-citizens. When it comes to non-citizens, including refugees, the president can temporarily stop them from traveling or immigrating. We could be talking about Somalis, Syrians, or Iranians. Right. And as Ahilan told us, you know, the president can basically come up with any number of reasons to do that if he wanted to. Some of those reasons may be such a challenge, for sure. But the challenges are hard. I would say harder than a lot of the challenges that we've been discussing, you know, Mm. thus far. So when I say, oh, X, Y, Z, Muslim registry, like clearly unconstitutional, so far out of bounds. In contrast, something like temporary halt to all of the refugee processing from Syria but because of concerns about security in Syria, very hard to constrain that, very hard to stop that from happening. I'm going to get up on your business now. So you work for immigrants' rights, uh, but you're also the child of Tamil immigrants from Sri Lanka. And so I'm just curious, like, if you have any personal anxieties or if this any of this stuff touches your friends and family. Uh, it, it does um, in, in a bunch of different ways. One way, which is, is not about me being a Sri Lankan Tamil, but my, my wife is a um, Bangladeshi Muslim, mm-hmm. and she still has a lot of family. We, have, we still have a lot of family um, in Bangladesh, and we have relatives who go back and forth. They're all Muslim. You know, they're, Some of my relatives wear hijab, and they go to the mosque and all that. So when you hear about a travel ban, and, uh, that they're gonna, or, or whatever it is, and they're going to put countries on a list... Obviously, one of the things I'm curious to see about is Bangladesh going to be on that list. That was Ahilan Arulanantham of the ACLU of Southern California. When we talked to him, we didn't really know whether there'd be a travel ban. But Shireen, we may soon find out which countries are officially on that list. That's true. And that's why we're going to keep touching base with people about their questions and concerns about the administration's new policies and plans. More than a few of you called in to say you're worried that issues like a border wall, mass deportation, Muslim bans could actually distract from less showy policies that might directly and negatively impact people of color. That is terrifying and depressing, Shereen. How do we end this episode without everyone listening wanting to set themselves on fire, though? The way that I'm doing it every day by listening to Kendrick 
on repeat. It'll be like the Invisibility Dance Party. You know what I mean? All right, y'all, that's our show for this week. Thank you for rocking with us. As always, we want to hear from you. You can email us at codeswitch at npr.org. Follow us on Twitter at NPRCodeswitch. And you should definitely, definitely subscribe to our podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found. Walter Ray Watson produced this episode. And we had original music by Ramteen Arab Louie. A big shout out to the rest of the Codeswitch family. Adrian Florido, Karen Grigsby-Bates, Kat Chow, and Leah Danella. Our editors are Netta Ulibi and Keith Woods. And a welcome to our new boss, Juleka Lantigua-Williams. Three names for the win. Turn up. We're back next week. I'm Shereen Marisol Meraji. And I'm Gene Demby. Be easy. Peace. <laughs>